Captain's Log. Stardate, Friday. The USS Coffee and Circuses has been dispatched to a far-flung corner of the galaxy. Destination, chat. Oh my god, that's too cheesy for me. Okay, <laughs> welcome to episode 35 of Coffee and Circuses. This week, I'm joined by Ben Greed. Ben has spent the last couple of years at the University of Reading, where he's been working as a postdoctoral researcher on the project People and Birds in the Southern Levant, for which he's been looking at the relationship between the people of the region and their avian neighbours from the Neolithic through to the Islamic period. You'll hear him chatting about that on today's show, including how it was a steep learning curve, jumping into what were for him unknown periods of history and an unfamiliar region, having undertaken his PhD in classics, where he studied the symbolism of the eagle in the Roman world, which naturally included its military, divine and political connotations. But as he discusses today, he also delved into lesser acknowledged aspects, such as what did Roman women think when they saw the image of the eagle and how did it relate to pregnancy? Also, as you probably gathered, there's a lot of talk this week about Ben's other interest, classical reception in film and TV, particularly Star Trek. We're going back to some of the original series episodes, such as Bread and Circuses, has a ring to it, and Who Mourns Adonai, and Ben discusses the chapter he wrote for a book where he explored how an episode of Star Trek unintentionally takes down Plato. We also talk more widely about the connotations of the Roman Empire in mid-20th century America, including post-war feelings regarding dictatorships and the so-called communist Red Scare, and how this relates to the portrayal of the Romulans in Star Trek. Finally, he also gives a very good answer to the immortal question, Kirk or Picard? So, thanks for joining me, and may the Force be with you. Feels really awkward, doesn't it? So, what what did you think of the uh, trailer for Picard? See, actually, I've only seen the teaser trailer. Oh, really? But because I, I tend to kind of avoid trailers completely to try and keep the number of spoilers down significantly. However, I do know most of what happened in it. Okay. <laughs> I know that Data's coming back and I know that Seven's coming back. Yeah. I mean, the, but, the, the trailer is pretty awesome. The new trailer is pretty yeah. awesome. I, I showed it to my mum and my mum was like, because uh, she's a big Star Trek fan, and then she was like, oh, when does the film come out? And I was like, it's not a film, it's a TV series. But I suppose now the production value of TV series, like what you can do, is almost like film level. But no, I, I'm really excited, really excited for it. Yeah, it's hard to believe it's been 17 years since he last played him. You can't believe it, can you? It's been not, and I did also recently hear Jonathan Frakes and Marina Sirtis going to be in it as well. Yeah, I thought that was kind of yeah, going to be. They just they can't not. <laughs> yeah, I am kind of anticipating there would be like a big kind of next generation reunion. Like, I mean, you can't have Card going off, getting into trouble, and then like Wolf hears about it. Wolf's not going to sit around and not come and join him or yeah, exactly, like Geordie, yeah. etc. So, yeah, um, yeah, no, I'm I, I'm really looking forward to it. It feels like a a good lump of nostalgia in some respects, but kind of pushing it forward, but at the same time. But yeah, so one of the, I mean, obviously one of the big things that you do, things that you focused on has been classical reception, particularly the Roman world in modern film and cinema. Uh, I know you've got a blog as well where you talk about it. Yes. 
you talk about various things on there, but the big main one, uh, kind of following on from what we were just talking about, not just randomly, but still, I talk about Star Trek randomly anyway, is the the way the Roman world, uh, or the way that Star Trek draws on the Roman world or the classical world. So, I mean, why? <laughs> Essentially, like, I mean, I'm going to assume that you were a Star Trek fan uh, initially, yes, and, yeah. and obviously yeah. studying the classical world, you kind of saw the two come together. But what what initially kind of sparked your interest in looking at how star trek takes things from the Roman world i mean we should mention quickly i mean like there's obviously like a number of instances where that happens you've got the original series episode bread and circuses and where they go to a planet where the roman empire or something akin to the roman empire is still going and then you've got who mourns adonis where there's the greek gods they're living on the planet uh, and then obviously like the romulans are basically uh yeah. ripping off the roman empire but so yeah did you just sit there and st- watch star trek one day and think oh there's something to this that was exactly what happened, actually. It was the first year of my PhD, um, and I'd not watched through the original series before. I'd never seen any of it. Uh, and so I started watching through it, and that's when I came across Who Mourns for Adonis or Adonai, whichever one you want to pronounce it like. And it was watching that, and because I'd already done a lot of reception in my undergraduate, postgraduate stuff, so I was really interested in it. But it was just starting from that episode and then watching Bread of Circuses that I really started to look into the background because it's because also I listen to quite a lot of Star Trek podcasts like this one. They there's like a built-in audience that's very similar to academics in the mm. way that they dig deep into the source material to pull out lots of different meaning, but then also look at the creators in a really, really detailed fashion. So I found that really interesting. And obviously there was a lot of information about the background behind it. So I'm almost as interested in the way the source was created, but then also how it's later received. I think one of the interesting things I found about Bread and Circuses is the message that the episode is apparently giving of kind of well, what it says on the tin, bread and circuses, but for a modern audience, because it takes the Roman Empire and it puts it into a contemporary setting, uh, placing the gladiators on television. I think um, the writers of that particular episode were aiming to show the audience that television in the 1960s, which was a relatively recent phenomenon, was distracting them from the major political happenings of the period, which 60s, that obviously huge amounts of political uh, stuff going on. And the writers were trying to point that out by using the Romans as kind of a metaphor for that. But then later, that message is still being read into that episode. It didn't just stop there in the 60s, because I started reading lots of blogs, because we have, again, with this engaged fan base, they're talking about it constantly. And so you're hearing different receptions from the audience of that episode right from the 1960s up until now and so there's a lot of people who are drawing christian messages from that episode there was one who was talking about uh how it was relating to hippie culture okay uh, because because of the like relating the the crushing the downtrodden christians by the fascist state relating to the fact of how the government was kind of crushing the hippie movement in the 1960s. So you've got this really engaged fan base who are receiving it 
So th there's lots of points of reception, which I found really, really interesting. Uh, and that seems to happen with quite a lot of the different series and the different instances of Star Trek. You've got that built-in audience. So you can examine the reception from the point of the writer receiving the classical source and then the point of the audience receiving that reception in much greater detail, I think, than, say, if you picked up some a random book or a random TV show that doesn't quite have as many or as an engaged fan base as Star Trek does. Yeah, it's sort of almost like you can kind of see a family tree almost in my mind of like how it kind of pans out from the original, as you say, like the original source material in the Roman world and then transmits down to the to the, to the writer. But then it sort of like veers off in all these different directions because you're saying like yeah. so many people interpret in different ways. I mean, in some respects as well, obviously, like Star Trek in itself is kind of on one branch of a whole myriad, like a massive like tree of different directions people have gone in with their interpretations of the Roman world. And then, as you say, when it goes through the kind of the prism of Star Trek and feeds out to its fans, it goes in different directions as well. I mean, I will say that I remember that episode right at the very end, isn't it? Like Ahura is like picking up the message about the sun or something like that. And then they're like, they talk about Christianity coming. And I don't know, I thought that was a very cheesy ending. I was a little bit like, oh God. <laughs> no, I mean, there are times. Yeah, a, I, lot of people, a lot of people think that's a cheesy ending. And there's a lot of issues with whether... So there's a big debate on whether Gene Roddenberry wanted any religion in Star Trek and whether those lines were interpreted by the network. Because that's another thing I love about studying these particular... Not, not just Star Trek, but cinema and television in particular, is the, the authorship is so kind of... like I don't even know how to describe it. You can't say... It's not like if you're reading... A book now and you say this book was written by this author and we have a direct link there there's so many parts of that puzzle for a, a television episode or a movie you've got a central writer like say, take bread and circuses for example bread and circuses was written by gene coon who helped work on star trek but that was then edited by gene roddenberry and by a bunch of other script supervisors and then it was interpreted by the director but also it had lots of input by the costume designer and the sound mm. designer. Uh, and then you have the actual audience <laughs> and also the network putting in various notes here and there and everywhere. So the actual authorship is so complicated. Uh, I find that part really interesting as well. Uh, interesting rather. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I just went off on one there. I no, no, feel free. Feel free. <laughs> I was just saying about how cheesy the ending was. No, cheesy the ending. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's still, I mean, it's it's fascinating. I don't know how to frame this as a question because it's a very, very subjective question. Do you think it's a good episode? I mean, actually, in terms of like when you watch it back, do you think what they do with the source material, how they utilize it, put it out there, do you think that, as I say, because I mean, there are different ways of interpreting it. From your perspective, though, do you look at the episode and say, it's obviously interesting because of what you do and what you're interested in, but do you think that it's a good episode or do you think it's one of those episodes where it's a bit kind of hammy and a bit high rolling? Cause that's the thing about particularly like the original series, like they have some astoundingly good episodes, but then obviously they do have our episodes where it's a little bit like, Oh, they're kind of perhaps trying to just fill this, this week in a bit. Like where do, where do you sort of see that episode as being? I don't think I'm an objective judge of it, to be honest. <laughs> I've spent a lot, a lot of time thinking about it. And then actually, usually when I watch something that I like, I say, oh, that was really interesting. 
I think that's that's what to me is makes something good is because if I find it really interesting and I can engage with it a lot. So I really like that episode. I don't think that makes it a good episode. Mm. But then I, I, I don't think you can objectively say that whether it's good or bad at all. It, it really depends on who you are as a person, how you've reacted to it, I suppose. Yeah. That's interesting. And then, and I, think, uh, I was just going to say... Going could... back to the audience reception of it, listening to like podcasts about Star Trek, you can see that even the ones that usually everybody says is bad is someone's favourite. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose actually it's interesting as well because there's certain things about the <laughs> a very kind of weird tangent to go down is the kind of like sensory experience of it in terms of like people probably associate certain episodes with certain like things in their lives or something like that. They have that memory of sitting there watching it like at home or something. And then like for whatever reason, like that episode stands out and it's not actually because it's that episode in particular. Like it just might be think some something going on around it and that's why it sticks with them or, you know, they come home on the last day of school and it's on TV or something like that. And it just, you know, it, joins in their brain with like a, a good feeling that's uh no i suppose you're right though it is just down to the individual choice i mean okay different way of putting it then what would you, <laughs> what do you what do you prefer i don't know if this is, again you might say this doesn't really work but what do you prefer out of bread and circuses and who mourns uh adonai you say adonai so it's actually not adonis i've been saying that wrong with my all the time or yeah, I, I think it's adonai because yeah. uh, the, the the title is drawn from a poem rather than from a particular from a classical source, um, and now I'm I'm going off memory here, so I'm not sure whether <laughs> this is going to be completely accurate. But it's from a poem, and I can't remember the name of the poet. But the 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 line essentially means "Who mourns for God?" Okay, it's basically saying God is dead, which is what I think the whole episode is supposed to be about. And then, but then again, we have a thing of authorship here because Kirk says. Um, we don't need more than one god. We find the one quite sufficient. Yeah. So it's like saying, actually, we do need one because we've got one. But anyway, um, yeah, I think I don't really know. I didn't go back to the question again. <laughs> <laughs> which one do you? Which one do you prefer? Do you have a preference out of the two of them? But that's because I like the Romans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I probably <laughs> answered the same. I like I like Romans, and therefore I, that one's my favourite out of the two because um, I just like I like seeing stuff with Romans in it. It, it always makes me happy. <laughs> what do you think then about the as you mentioned before, like the Romulans in particular are very much kind of taking elements of of the of the Roman world and, and utilising them. I mean, do you think that was originally the intention? I'm assuming it probably was the intention, yeah. like. But do you think that's that kind of idea has been developed quite a lot as the time has progressed from where the Romans start the, the Romans the Romulans started in the original series to kind of where we got to in the end? Because obviously by the time you have like the last Star Trek film for the next generation with Nemesis, you have the Moon Remus as well. And do you think that was like something that the various writers and producers etc. of Star Trek took that and kind of ran with it as time went on? Do you think that's something that's kind of developed out? I don't think so. They, oh, really? The original episode developed, which is Balance of Terror, they they did hone in on the Roman thing, mainly because they look very Roman, and obviously they're using Roman um, military terms um, and call them Romulans. 
and I think they're definitely using it in that in that first episode. But as with I think a lot of representations of Romans, not just in Star Trek, but and I mean maybe this is too broad a statement, but I think it's kind of an easy veneer to place over a culture to make it seem like it's fascist. It's almost an easily recognisable symbol for a viewer to go, oh, that's a military dictatorship. I know that because the Romans are military dictatorships without kind of veering into um, using Nazi imagery or or, or other kind of fascist imagery. Um, So I think that's what's going on in the original episode because they're kind of making a equivalence to the Romulans and communists uh, in that episode but then I think they drop it completely because mm-hmm. the, the next episode there's not really very much Roman to the Romulans in that episode you've got a woman commander and then in the next generation there's they've got Roman names ish but they don't really have much Roman about them apart from the the names that have been placed on them and then in Nemesis which is that last movie they kind of drawn it a little bit with the Remans, the Romulus and Remus kind of thing, but that's not really what the movie's about, and they don't really develop it too no. much, uh, apart from having the actual Senate there, uh, and obviously the birds, which is my other area of research. <laughs> you've got this big eagle on the bottom of the Romulan spaceship, and you've got it in the Senate as well in Nemesis. So that's quite, I think that's quite Romanesque, but not Romanesque. That's probably a different. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think they drop it in the middle almost completely. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting, though, what you say about the Romans being like a go-to for... We, we want to make something appear on TV or film being like a military dictatorship. So yeah. you take aspects of the Roman Empire. That interests me because of the way that as, the, sometimes the conception that people have is of... America being kind of like a new Roman Empire in its yes. own way, but also just just more on a basic level. Like obviously there are things like the idea of a Senate architecture. You know, I mean, like it happens obviously in Europe as well. Like joint heritage that's, that's in to do with the Roman Empire, the European. I can't remember what treaty it was. The one that signed in Rome that kind of kicks off the European Union, etc. Those are kind of like a lot of sometimes a lot of positives taken from the Roman world, and it's quite interesting how you say that they have. You know, other times it can be seen as a dictatorship and a bad thing, averse to democracy, which it kind of was. But at the same time, there is that kind of tension that exists. Uh, because I'm just wondering suddenly when Spartacus came out. Uh, 1960 or 59, oh, 59, okay. 60. Because obviously in that, the Romans are the bad guys and they're yeah. mainly played by British people. It's yeah. very much an analogy with the British Empire and the Americans and also the end of slavery. And they're obviously they're like the Romans are the bad guys, the authoritarian evil empire. Have you come across many other examples as well where that seems to play yeah, out? I, I, think, I think in a lot of those movies from the 1950s, 60s, the Romans do come across as the, the bad guys. Quo Vardis is similar. Mm. The, the Roman centurion, the good centurion, the m- main heroic character, goes from a centurion, becomes a Christian. But the, the well, we've got Nero and all that wonderful stuff. Uh, and Quo Vardis is a great movie. So I really, really enjoy it. And But movies like that in that era, the Romans are generally the bad guys. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean... Reading like Maria White's projecting Roman past stuff like that, you, you get the impression that, well, to me, it's it's almost 
threefold what they're representing in some of those movies. So you've got the you've got the actual Roman state, which is seen as a fascist military dictatorship, crushing the poor Christians, which obviously the American public are going to identify themselves with the downtrodden Christians. Uh, then you've got you've got those lovely British accents harkening back to the Americans fighting in the Revolutionary War against the British imperial overlords represented by the Romans. And then you've got stuff reinforcing it like the the Roman salute, which looks, well, is basically a Nazi salute, uh, or a fascist salute at least, looking at those dictatorships they just defeated in World War Two, And then you wouldn't be able to go into a, a movie about the Romans in the 1950s and 60s in the middle of the Red Scare and not see that bunch of red and not think communists. I just don't think that's mm. going to happen. But then you're right. It's also America. And it, I think some of the directors of those movies were making that very clear. Uh, they were inserting elements into those movies which were talking about, say, things like the House of Un-American Activities. And therefore... Not only were the Romans the Romans, the Romans were the British and the Romans were the Nazis, the Romans were also America and they were also warning against America becoming a, a fascist state as well. And I think Star Trek's drawing on all of those tropes when it gets to bread and circuses um, because the, the story itself almost mirrors Spartacus, Quo Vadis, it's those downtrodden Christians being taken over by a fascist Roman state. It's just slightly altered for a science fiction setting. Uh, and I think that actually makes the message much more powerful because it's not just talking about television, it's also talking about cinema. So it's talking about media in general and saying to the public in 1966, you're being distracted by the media, there's important stuff going on, uh, listen to it. Hmm. Yeah, I do want to quickly say when we go back to just talking about Christianity or like one God in Star Trek... To this day, I, one of the reasons I still like Star Trek V, the, the film, is because essentially it's William Shatner, directs William Shatner, fighting and defeating God. Uh, yes. <laughs> it doesn't say uh, what kind of ego William Shatner has, but I don't think anything else will. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, God loves some Shatner. I mean, just quickly as well, because you, you wrote a chapter in a book about uh, a Star Trek Next Generation episode. Yes, yeah. Which was... I almost forgot about that. <laughs> uh, outside In makes it so. 174 new perspectives on 174 Star Trek Next Generation stories by 174 writers. Um, what, so what was that about? Like, how did you get into that? What was the, what was the yeah. gist of it? It wasn't... An, it's not an academic book. It's yeah, just yeah. like a, a book for the general public. And actually, my, my PhD supervisor, um, Penelope Goodman, who's at the University of Leeds... She's contributed to a volume on Doctor Who. Oh, really? Yeah, because uh, this publisher did a bunch of different volumes for different series. Um, I think most of them tie into the anniversaries. And she didn't want to do Star Trek, so she suggested me to him. And so, yeah, he just gathered loads and loads of authors together to write their own perspectives on episodes from The Next Generation. So there was a whole bunch of weird things in there that were interesting like somebody had done like uh, a drawing somebody had done watching an episode of star trek from the perspective of the villain so they changed loads of things around and then mine was talking about an episode 
um, which not a lot of people remember, called the Masterpiece Society. No, no, no recollection of it at all. No. <laughs> it's basically uh, the Enterprise goes and finds a colony of humans on a planet that are encased in a dome, and they're all genetically perfect for each other and they're supposed to match each other and they're all wonderful uh, and then this asteroid is heading for the planet and they're all going to die but they won't evacuate because they've got this perfect society encased in this dome that's not got any outside interference uh, until the Enterprise gets there and starts messing with them and Councillor Troy falls in love with the leader uh, and all this stuff happens. But I saw a comparison there with um, the kind partly, partly at least with the society that is set up in Plato's Republic, um, particularly the like division of um, society into like the three stratas, where you have the I, I can't remember the terms you use now. <laughs> oh well, uh, but you have like the the warriors, the technology people, and the um, the leaders, and they're represented by the three characters in that episode, but. I, what I found interesting about it is you can see that reception into it. You can see Plato's Republic there. Um, I'm not sure everybody would, and I'm not sure whether it's valid enough, but that's reception stuff talking. But when it gets down to it, that perfect society that Plato constructs at the end of that Star Trek episode is destroyed because of the things that Plato didn't want in his society, either because of the historical situation he was in or the society is set up so he doesn't want familial relationships and the fact that the Council of Troy falls in love with the leader is partly why the society crumbles. Uh, and then also Geordie, who is disabled, talking to the people in that society where there are no disabled people because they're not allowed, because they're genetically perfect, almost as if the, the Greek reactions to disabled people are quite similar, that like the discarding of babies, etc. Because he challenges their ideas, that also leads to the crumbling of the society. Because they didn't allow for the diversity that's kind of inherent in the Star Trek message, Plato's kind of Republic collapses in on itself at the end of the episode. Oh, that's a great idea. Star Trek takes down Plato. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think that happens a lot, actually. There's a, the, uh, again, it's that thing of, I don't think there's actually a reception intended in a lot of things like this. And sometimes you can draw them out, whether that's got a point to it or not. I'm not sure whether it's academically viable for me to make these comparisons is, is another question, but say there's an episode of the original series called, um, oh, it's got it's one of the really long t- titles. It's um, for the world is hollow and I have touched the sky. Do you remember that one? <laughs> what happens in it? So they get to, they discover this asteroid, and it's a hollow asteroid, uh, and there's a society living inside the asteroid, and so the Enterprise crew go inside, and these people inside the asteroid think that that is the entire universe, that they are stuck in this asteroid and there is nothing outside of it, until Dr. McCoy comes along and explains to them that they're living in an asteroid and he like falls in love with somebody, but there's one guy who, in that society has gotten to the top of the mountain and literally touched the sky because they're encased in a in an asteroid and to me it perfectly is a metaphor for well it is plato's cave essentially (laughs) you've got one guy turning into the back of these people in the middle of an asteroid which is a big cave saying 
no, there's reality out there. You need to go and look at it. That's getting very... Because uh, Porphyry wrote on the, the Cave of the Nymphs, which talked about the cave, the, the Mithraic Cave as well, and how in that Mithras oh, yeah. is the Mithraic Cave is also the universe. Oh, my God, we're getting Myth- Mithras into Star Trek. My, my, I'm done now. That's it, I'll go home. Uh, <laughs> talk about Mithras is throwing me off now. What was I going to say next? Oh, that was it. Um, so how do you feel, though, about... It wasn't like an academic book as such, but do you think, though, that there's something to be said there about branching off and doing more of those kind of things. It's like when I had Giacomo uh, Savani on the podcast uh, a few months ago. Uh, I mean, Giacomo does a lot of stuff with creative writing and, and contributes to books that talk about exploring the ancient world through things like the creative process. I mean, some of that stuff is kind of for academic publications. Some of the stuff that he does as well is just for his own kind of interest. To my mind, I suppose, that can only still be a beneficial thing because somebody might read the, the chapter that you wrote in that book or read something that Giacomo's written and then they might be like, oh, this is interesting and they might start delving into it. I mean, one of the reasons I started doing the podcast was because it was a way of reaching people and you know getting them perhaps interested in the ancient world through a different medium, which traditionally academia didn't really seem to draw on so much. I mean, do you think there's something there of... Uh, engaging with people via via means like that and getting into like pop culture etc yeah i think 100 i think it's part of our job really yeah. <laughs> like d- disseminating all of this research in as many ways as possible and i think it's easier to do that now than it probably ever was but i think in- engaging with something like that which also already has an inbuilt fan base you have people who are already directly interested in this topic and so getting to them through their own interests, I think really, really works. And actually, because I wrote that book, I appeared on a Star Trek podcast talking about that book and therefore talking about classics quite a bit uh, to an audience that wouldn't maybe have thought about thinking about these topics before and maybe got interested on the basis of that. But it was doing that experience that, like, I really want to start doing that more. I think engaging in specialist audiences is a really good way to disseminate your research. So, like, in, in my postdoctoral position, I went and give a, gave a talk to... We were working with an organisation called Jordan Birdwatch, which is a group of, like, ornithologists, tour guides, um, and birdwatchers in Jordan, uh, who one of, the, one of the ornithologists was helping us with our research. But I went and talked at their AGM about the archaeology of birds in Jordan because they're interested in birds, and I've got a bunch of knowledge about archaeology of birds, so they were interested in that. And I've been trying to do the same thing when I've got back here. I've not had much time to do it now, but I'd, I'd like to go and talk to specialist audiences here in the UK because I think that's a really interesting way to disseminate your research. So like here in where I live in Hertfordshire, there's the Hertfordshire Natural History Society. And I want to try and get involved and say, look, I've got a bunch of knowledge about the history of birds and you guys are all bird watchers. Do you want to hear about it? Uh, stuff like that. And just getting to people where they live almost, like where their interests lie and disseminating your research to them. And then online is a whole another avenue, which I think it's just great to see people exploring that. But like with stuff like this podcast, I bet there's a bunch of listeners who just would have never thought about listening to classics before that might have actually just stumbled across the podcast through another podcast and started listening to it hmm. i hope so although sometimes yeah. i wonder if i turn people off the classics <laughs> who knows, who knows? <laughs> um 
So just to, I mean, you you talking there about your your uh, postdoctoral research on the the project at the University of Reading because your PhD was on the representation of is it the eagle in uh, yeah. their own world? So I mean, like, how did you get onto that subject? And I mean, obviously, the eagle is a you know it's, it's kind of t- been touched upon already. It is a very prominent sy- symbol in the Roman world. It's the symbol of Jupiter. It's also like military stands, etc. So I mean, like, how did you how did you get down that route of um, studying studying that for the thesis and uh have you got any interesting things that have come out of it at all so um it originally came out of a movie hmm. was <laughs> it, it the eagle of... the eagle yeah <laughs> in 2011 when it, uh i think yeah 2011 um so it was just as i went into my masters that i watched that um and i got interested in that topic and then I can't remember who said it to, to me in my masters, but it was in one of my tutorials where someone was talking about when you study something, you, it's sometimes really good to narrow down to a single uh, topic and explore that as fully as possible. And because it was already in my mind, that's exactly what I went to. And then so when I got to the PhD, I was like, oh, I, well, I did a little bit in my masters, a couple of essays uh, on the eagle in my masters. And then just took it into the into the PhD uh, and never thought that it, it would be as long as it did. It was. There was so, so much there because I kind of approached it from a, a more holistic view or as, as a holistic view as possible where I tried to get as many perspectives on the symbolism of the eagle within Roman society as possible. Its connection to Jupiter, its connection to the military, but then I also talk about, for example, what women would have thought of when they thought of the eagle. So oh, there's okay. these wonderful artifacts where uh, called eagle stones, which are little stones with another stone inside, which they jingle about. But they were used to stop miscarriages or problems in pregnancy. And so they were known as eagle stones and thought to come from the nests of eagles. But I think that was the stuff I, I was really... I really liked finding out about and thinking about is because if you have say a Roman woman who is pregnant with one of these Eagle pendants on her wrist or, or wherever protecting her unborn child, and she is connecting that stone directly to the image of the Eagle when she walks around and sees. So uh, there's a, one of my favorite representations of an Eagle is the one in York and it's in York museum. Um, Cause it's just, I, I don't know why I like it so much. It just it's, looks like it's done by a guy from York. That's, <laughs> the best, that's the best I can put it. But it's it's not like nobody's paid a huge amount of money for it, but it's definitely there. But then when she walked past that eagle, she probably wouldn't have been thinking about Jupiter or the emperor or the legions. Maybe she was just thinking about the protection that animal has given her unborn child. Uh, that's I like coming at it from that perspective because... I just like exploring every avenue that, that that symbol had in Roman culture. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. As you say, the different different ways you can go with it. How far forward did you go with it? Because I mean, the eagle symbol kind of carries over into post-Roman period. With you have like the Visigoths, well, the so-called kind of Visigothic brooches that are have eagles on them. Did you go that far forward, or where did you kind of stop? No, I, I have stopped at two eleven AD. Um, We'll see. Uh, and that was because 
time and space. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, you have to limit yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you go I'd down that. To, I'd love to carry on. I think I think the eagle goes under a huge change from two eleven to to what to what four fifty. Maybe there's like a, a dramatic shift in what it means within culture based on Christianity. Yeah. 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 Well, I was gonna say yeah because the eagle has to. Well, I don't know. Has to be. Sh- it's not going to necessarily be entirely stripped of its religious connotations, but it has to alter and, and adapt in it the, the new climate. Yeah, quite significantly, I think. Um, yeah, it, I find that that it, I'd love to do some research on that, but it's too close to the PhD now. I've got to. <laughs> I'll come back to it in ten years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's, that's the problem, isn't it? You can't go off with that. Like you have to kind of go in new directions, but at least you can sort of file away, file it away, and come back to it. So, uh, just quickly, did you ever read the Rosemary Sutcliffe book? I mean, that the film is, is based on. Have you ever got around to actually? Uh, I did a very, very, very long time ago. Yeah, I don't. I don't even much remember because like, I did I even because I think I read it before the film came out. But I think I read it when I was a kid, and I just don't remember it at all. Okay. Yeah. There was a TV series I think made of it as well. I've been. I'm, yeah, so I've, I've not gotten around to watching yeah. it. I've been looking into it recently myself because of the. I've been doing something on the, the reception of Mithras in literature because oh, right. uh, yeah. uh, Marcus, the the main protagonist of the book, is a, is a Mithraic initiate. Which yeah, he is in the film, isn't he? But he doesn't really go into it that much. They don't talk about it though. No, it's like it's weird because mainly what I'm writing about is mainly to do with Rudyard Kipling. But Rosemary Sutcliffe was like massively influenced by Kipling. But to them and other authors as well, the way that the cult of Mithras is talked about, or the way the characters approach it, it's almost very. It comes across a lot like being a monotheistic solar religion basically the idea is it's playing off a lot to do with christianity and i mean what i'm writing about at the moment is kind of essentially talking about how kipling critiques christianity and uses the cult of mithras as an almost ideal religion because he finds it ideal because he was a member of the freemasons so he sees the appeal of that also he was a massive misogynist so the fact that it's only a, a normal cult as well also seems to have uh, probably appealed to him very much as well but uh, no it's, it's just interesting but again reception it's something that i've recently started getting like really into as well and with, well I mean, it's like we're saying it's uh it's the way that the vast majority of the population consume ancient history or get their initial ideas about it i mean some people go off and explore it further via academic books or articles but reality most people watch gladiator and then that'll be it but i mean like from gladiator they'll think they have some idea about the ancient world and it's very interesting what kind of themes and ideas come through media be an actual film set in the roman world or as you're talking about to do with star trek as well like those kind of things get in there and i think it was richard hingley said in one of his books about how we shouldn't disregard the idea of things like children's fiction, but also I think this applies to popular culture as really almost subconsciously imbuing people with ideas and misconceptions in some cases about the ancient world. Sorry, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent at the moment, but uh, kind of pulling it back to birds um, again. I, I think that's so true, though. Like, I think there's so much subconsciously that you, you ingest it, particularly at a young age that you kind of take in and you hold on to it even into academic study, I think, quite a lot. Because I, I think back to what I was originally interested in, the standard kind of military history kind of stuff. <laughs> but, but that comes from the books I was reading as a kid. So one of the, one of the things that got me into 
classics was did you ever read the Simon Scarrow novels? No, although I keep meaning to get around to another to looking at least one of them because one of them has Mithras in it, so I was intrigued to how he presents it. Um, I read but... those as a kid. Uh, I, I loved those books when I was younger. I've not revisited them at all. I think I, I don't know whether I could now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I thought they're re- they're really interesting and they're still going really strong. But yeah, they were, those were a big impact on my, getting me in the door and getting me thinking about the Romans and classics in general, in fact. Mm. I wonder how many people have uh, visited Hadrian's Wall in the last few years because of Game of Thrones. There must, there, there's probably going to be a lot of people. I mean, obviously, some people have gone to Northern Ireland because of it and other areas, but the appeal of going up to what is essentially everybody thinks of being the wall. Yeah, I mean, even that's interesting. It's not saying I've gone into, but... When you read uh, Pucker Pook's Hill by Kipling, uh, the way he talks about the wall in that, Hadrian's wall in that, is very reminiscent of uh, when you read Game of Thrones. And I think uh, I've got a feeling that perhaps, whether intentionally or unintentionally, George R. R. Martin has actually drawn on some of like Kipling's ideas there. I wonder. Yeah. You, can, you can just tweet him and ask. Yeah, yeah. I could, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's I saw... also one of the great things about, having, about studying reception that's going on is you can literally just... Well, one of the, either ask the author or look at what they've said and say, "Oh, well, yeah. maybe that's what they meant." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, I'm trying to track down some stuff now about other like 20th century authors, but it's really hard because they're a bit more obscure, like, and they're dead. Um, like, then it's yes. like I found like somebody wrote a profile about an author in like a magazine once, and I've tried to contact recently the publishers of the magazine, being like, "I need an actual reference for this." Does anybody know where I can find it? Because there's no other way of getting it. But it was like another author who wrote a book, a guy named Wallace Bream, who wrote a book called The Eagle in the Snow. It's quite an interesting book, actually. It's it's set at like the turn of the 5th century and it's about a centurion who is, is he a centurion or just commander or whatever, kind of trying to defend the frontier of the Roman world. But at the same time, he's a Mithraic initiate, but he's also kind of dealing with the machinations of the local bishop who is completely like intolerant of other people's faves. And he wrote this book and he's got like a Wikipedia page, which is a few lines long. But I read in this, in this thing that I found online that he read Kipling when he was younger, which makes sense because he went off and served in India at the end of like the British Empire's occupation there which yeah it would have made sense but I need like something to actually reference for it and but, yeah I messaged Neil Gaiman as well once about some uh, yeah <laughs> he didn't get back to me he mentions Mithras in uh, American Gods uh, right. the two of the characters have a very brief conversation where Mithras gets brought up and I was like I was interested as to where he got the idea from but he still never got back to me so Neil Gaiman if you listen to the podcast which you clearly do uh, <laughs> Look up my message and get back to me. But yeah, just to 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 swing back round to the birds, or, or fly back round to the birds. After finishing the PhD, you went on to do the uh, postdoctoral position at Reading for for a couple of years. Um, you sort of talked about it already, but what, what what did that involve? What was that about? I mean, that's got its own website, which we'll come back to at the end. Yeah, uh, it it was a huge departure from the PhD because I did my PhD in classics, obviously. But this was not only was it in the Department of Archaeology. Um, the project is, is was examining uh, two uh, assemblages of bird bones from Neolithic excavations in southern Jordan. That was mo- most of the project, but it was it was a larger project looking at or using the history of the birds in the southern Levant to talk about those bones and give us as much evidence as possible. So 
I went into it as a classicist and I've come out of it, well, I'd say an ancient historian, that's how I usually define myself, and I still probably would, but I've come out of it with such a different skill set than when I went into it. Um, and I've learned about stuff that I never, ever thought I'd be, one, interested in, and then two, get the opportunity to do. Um but I found it really fascinating looking. So my role in that position was to look at the material culture, uh, well, as I call it, the avian material culture, which is all the stuff that is connected to birds in some fashion, from the Epipaleolithic all the way up to the early Islamic period. Uh, and then also looking at <coughs> the use of birds by the traditional societies in that area, so like the Bedouin people, uh, and then I also did some ethnographic interviews with the communities down there, the better oh, communities, nice. uh, talking about birds as well. So I ended up learning so much in that those two years, not only about expanding my archaeological knowledge, but just loads of other knowledge about like qualitative interviewing and ethnography, uh, all of this stuff. Um, so I've come out of it probably more in archaeology than I went into it. <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating, though, because, I mean, people have talked on the podcast before about reaching across the divide, not just in terms of, like, classics and archaeology, but there's a particular thing about talking to people that study prehistory in particular and people that study other periods and, and what can be gained out of, out of doing that. I mean, you, you've actually found yourself in a position where you've literally jumped not just from classics to archaeology, but from classics to archaeology and then gone backwards quite far in time uh, and also quite forward far in time as well. But as you say, that's been a very beneficial experience. I imagine a very steep learning curve. It was, it was a steep learning curve, particularly because, so going into the position... I probably didn't know anything probably past 700 BC backwards. Okay. And then I didn't really know anything beyond kind of 459, 550 AD. Um, so I then had to learn everything about the Neolithic, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age. <laughs> I think the, the, the saving grace of it was that it was narrowed down to a particular region uh, and also I could focus in on the on the particularly the birds, so looking at specific material culture. But going through, like, cataloging it all was, was a lot. And then also I had to learn about zooarchaeology, which I had previously done nothing on as well. Um, so that was a bit of a steep learning curve, but really, really interesting. Uh, yeah, fact, just really fantastic learning all that stuff and going bird watching in the deserts of Jordan. That was would never give up that experience, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. What was it like doing the interviews, though? I mean, you mentioned that, but that's, that's only very interesting, actually. So you... The interviews were fascinating. So I, it's a, a community in a location called Wadi Fenan, which is just south of the Dana Biosphere Reserve, which is the largest uh, nature reserve in Jordan. And so that's where one of the Neolithic excavations uh, was, and so the, there's a, a Bedouin community there. I just went and talked to them about their traditional knowledge of birds. So talking to them about kind of what they knew about the birds in the area, um, their kind of stories they told about birds, lots of different things like that. And that's I've submitted that as an article now, yeah. which may be the first article I get published. And considering I did 
a PhD in classics, it's going to be published in like the Journal of Ethnobiology. Well, cross fingers, I've not heard anything back yet, but that is a very weird jump. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny where these journeys can take you like, <laughs> as yeah, you progress. Definitely. But I suppose, I mean, the, the kind of the moral of the story there, I think, is be willing to look down different avenues and explore different avenues okay. as you go. I mean, quite often I talk to people at the end about uh, of the podcast about ideas they have about ways uh, where they, they think the, the study of the ancient world should go in future. But I think in some respects, like, you kind of demonstrate the fact that, you know, the idea of that, something that people come back to before as I mentioned is that you should be quite open to exploring different avenues like there's a lot that we can learn from different periods different areas etc and then that can feed back I mean do you think as well like going through that process that looking back now on your work um, like for the PhD uh, studying the eagle there did that change any ideas or give you new ideas for that at all? Yeah definitely um, it's made me put more zooarchaeology in that when it eventually will become a book, I'm definitely going to focus in on that more, thinking more about the animal itself uh, than I did, because I was thinking more of it as a cultural historian rather than uh, a historian of animals or a zooarchaeologist. I think that definitely needs to go in there more. But then also, I mean, I was I was of this opinion anyway, but I think there's much more, um, there, there's much older ideas in in that Roman stuff than, than is probably given credit for. And also, because part of the job was to look at <clears throat> kind of cross-cultural ideas of birds, so part of the postdoc position. So I had to produce a report on the kind of symbolism and use of particular bird species that we found in higher frequencies in the excavations across cultures worldwide. And one of those was the eagle. And by doing that, I actually found that some of the kind of higher tier symbolic meanings that are attached to the eagle, so uh, concepts like um, its connection to the divine through its ability to fly higher than anybody else, its connection to royalty uh, and kind of it, this dichotomy it has in culture between being on the one hand kind of king of the birds and the superior predator and the thing that represents martial prowess and then on the other hand the symbol of kind of criminality rapaciousness and kind of the stealing or murdering of people so it's, it's both these things almost at the same time and that was happening in quite a few different cultures and so by learning that those those kind of what i deem in my thesis as kind of macro symbolic concepts things that apply almost across the board and across the period, actually were much broader than I originally thought they were. Mm. Wow. There you go. Testimony there about opening your mind, particularly to, to prehistory and how that can inform the, the classics. So just, just moving towards uh, wrapping up then, do you have anything at all that you'd like to, to promote at all? I mean, you mentioned, we mentioned already you had the, the chapter in the book uh, that came out a while ago. So that, Pick it up if you're a Star Trek fan. I don't imagine it would be any, of any interest to anybody if they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're into um, Plato, you know. <laughs> yeah, only, that's only my, my chapter, though. Uh, there's uh, my blog, which is Dr. Ben's blog at whoop.wordpress.com, uh, which I haven't updated in very long because I've been very busy. Uh, but then I also recently did a blog post for another blog, which is spiritedhorse.wordpress.com on the history of the Chuck Partridge in the Southern Levant. 
so if anybody's interested in that, they can give that a read. Um, apart from that, not really. <laughs> <laughs> you're on, Everything you're, is work in progress at the minute. Uh, you're on Twitter as well, though. Uh, yeah, at the underscore greets, J-O-W-T. Nice. One last question. Kirkhoff card. Oh. Just quickly get back, because you said you hadn't really... the hard question. <laughs> you said you didn't watch the original series until later. So did you get started on Next Generation and then go back to the original series? Uh, no, so I started on the... I'm a latecomer, actually, to Star Trek. Uh, so I, start, I had watched some of the Next Generation when I was a kid and some of Voyager, uh, and then I kind of went away from it and then came back with the 2009 movie. And then started after that with the the original series, uh, and then went all, went all the way through from that point onwards. Okay. Um, I think it's situational. <laughs> <laughs> I like all the captains for different reasons, so I can't I can't I can never choose between Kirk and Picard. It's, I almost I almost describe it as Kirk's who you want to be, Picard's who you should be. <laughs> That is a good way of putting it. That is, that is, that is, that is, that's the really good way of putting it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And, what, and one last very, very quick thing. What do you think about the idea of Quentin Tarantino doing a Star Trek film? Uh, I think it'll be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Which goes right back to the beginning. I think interesting is probably going to be the, the, the best thing I'm going to put on that. Uh, yeah, I... Uh, I don't know what that would be like. I can't. I just can't visualise it at the moment. I'm, I'm intrigued to see. I mean, if he does it, which he says he wants to, it sounds like it will happen. But I just, I'm really struggling to visualise what that would actually be like. It's interesting because he was on a podcast years ago now, and they asked him if he wanted to do a, a like a franchise movie. What would it be? And he he said Star Trek way back then, and he said he wanted to do uh, a movie version of Yesterday's Enterprise. Is that the one, the Next Generation episode, where the... the, yeah. the okay. Yeah. Oh, all right, that'd be interesting. I know recently William Shatner said he'd be up for uh, coming back for it, and I think Quentin Tarantino said he would like to have him in, so I don't know. Yeah. Maybe we'll get William Shatner versus God Round 2 for this time directed by Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Much more bloody than the first time round, I bet. Yeah. Uh, no, we, want, we don't want God, we want Apollo. Oh, yes, yes. Or, or even better for me, have there we go. James Kirk versus Mithras, directed by Quentin Tarantino. There we go. That's sorted, yeah. sorted. <laughs> okay, right. Thank you very much. No problem. Thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh, or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies, who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian. Diocletian.